Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. In this episode, we'll hear Anne Enright, Sebastian Barry and Hugo Hamilton in conversation with Darren Nevreen as part of a 2014 event, Translating Ireland, which was presented in association with Literature Ireland. Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for that warm welcome and uh, great to see so many people here. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm there in Nivrian, and I should start by saying that I am a passionate fan of Ireland Literature Exchange and what they have achieved uh, under uh, increasingly difficult circumstances over the years. And also, not only of them, but of the importance of translation as a way of connecting people, really. And I'm honoured to have been asked to chair this session with two of what Sinead calls living literary giants, um, through all three of whom have had their, world, their words and their books translated in, I don't know how many languages. I was upbraided by somebody a minute ago by asking, how many languages are your books translated into? It was like a competition. Each of them had a figure, which I will now, I've decided, not reveal. But they have been translated into many, many languages all over the world, and actually surprising languages. Now, I don't know quite how that happens, and I'll be interested to hear as we go through the evening. So first of all, may I briefly introduce our three panelists. Next to me here is Hugo Hamilton. Um, as you know, he is the author of many books, over a dozen. He was awarded the Rooney Prize for Literature way, way back in 1992. And without going into the detail of all his work in between then and now, I will just say that his most recent book is probably the one with which, well, it's not actually, because The Speckled People is extremely well known as well, but his most recent book, Every Single Minute, based on a trip to Berlin that he took with the late Nolo Feilein, is, uh, as I say, the, the most recently published book last spring. Uh, Anne Enright is, uh, as you know, a short story writer and novelist, and she goes back to the Rooney Prize for Literature and many prizes. They, they're, they're all, the, the prizes go up and up and up as the years go on, as do uh, the development of their talents as well. And Anne's most recent novel would have been The Gathering, but she has a new one almost ready to go, and we all look forward to reading that in 2015. Um, Sebastian Barry, you all know as well, uh, playwright, author, novelist, poet, and the most recent of his books is The Temporary Gentleman, which was published earlier this year by Faber and Faber. But again, The Secret Scripture and A Long, Long War Way are the novels which have most been uh, translated internationally so far, as far as I know. And uh, his 2011 novel on Canaan's side was, of course, long-listed for the Booker and won the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction as well. So I'm delighted to have all three of you with us. May I start by asking you, each of you, to say a little bit about what your own, in general, your experience of having your work translated has been like. Good, bad, or indifferent. Hugo. Um... It's, it's very exciting and, well, first of all, thanks to Sinead and ILE for helping to uh, publish us in so many countries. 
Um, it's always very exciting to, to be translated into another country, even though you can't really hear the echo very often when you go to a place like Serbia or uh, you, you can't actually measure how good the translation is or what the translation is like. Um, the, the funny thing about my book, The Speckled People, it was translated into lots of different languages and um, the only language that I could actually uh, monitor was German. And um, that was quite exciting. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was scary in some ways because it was the language in which I li had lived in with my mother. And it was then sort of became, you know, there was some slight distance in, in the English language, which was no longer there in the German language. It was as al almost as though I was in the story myself again. Uh, so there's something extraordinary about language and how, it, how it, uh, the imagination shifts uh, so quickly. Did it feel like a different book, almost? It felt like a different book. It was actually more difficult for me to read from because it was, um, it was almost like I was back in the kitchen with my mother. Uh, and that was slightly scary in, in, in some ways, whereas the English language offered me some kind of, uh, you know, a fictional or sort of a, a literary distance from the from the story itself. Mm, you know? mm. I wonder if mm. the the converse is true, Anne, when you read your book, which has been written in your mother tongue, which is English, and if you read a French version of it, does it feel very different? Yeah, well, I have um, I, I avoid them a little bit. You know, uh, uh, it's a little bit like book covers in different cultures. You just don't understand what a the you, you in the U.S. what people are looking for. So I don't have a large opinion about the cover of my book. I don't say that's entirely wrong because it's a different language visually in the shop. Um, and that would be the same in you know, Holland or European or wherever. I mean, some weird covers, some really strange covers. Go on, um, tell us. Well, yeah, nude people and uh, we weirdy, nudey people in Italy, of course. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a bit of that. But I, I, my first, I had two early experiences of translation. One was with uh, The Portable Virgin, which was my first book of short stories. I've had such a lamentable history in France. I was reading about, uh, Edmund White was talking about being in Paris at this time, and, and, and my publishers were just fantastic, and they all died. My publishers died. But before oh. they died... Um, <laughs> They translated the La Vierge de Poche, which was the, the portable version. And it, there was a thing about a woman selling handbags, and the story was all about choice. Um, and the line was, she herself carried everything, which wasn't much, in one pocket or the other. And in my great foolishness, I thought this was a kind of glancing kind of joke in one pocket or the other. But it was translated in French into dans un l'autre de ses poches. So to end on pocket was weird. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It just, it just took the joke out of it. And um, you, you find with the, the French make you sound very intellectual, very lyrical, very intelligent, <laughs> and, they, and, and they're not as comfortable with the demotic thing that Irish writers often do, the local, the colloquial, the idiomatic, that they're not as comfortable with the way we rock popular culture or whatever it is. 
Then they, I mean, I won't tell you uh, what language, but there was, with, with the wig my father wore, there was a guy, I was on, in, a, in a phone box on the Aran Islands. This is how long, how, on Ackle Island. It was a very long time ago, no mobiles. I was taking a phone call from a guy who said, so when he sleeps with her, does he sleep with her or does he just sleep with her? <laughs> <laughs> and because it was mit or by, you know, in German. And if he had said mit or, or, or by, I would have understood the question. And I said, well, he sleeps with her. Uh, in the phone box, it was a bit like that, nor, you know, that, anyway. So in this translation, the, the, the two characters get it on, on page six. Whereas in the book, it was like, wait till the very end of the book. It was the, kind of the point. The point was that they didn't. Lost um, in translation. So not just in it? that mit or by, but, but he said, did they, but, but I was embarrassed, he was embarrassed. He was talking to an Irish woman, of course, couldn't talk about these terrible things in a phone. He didn't know me, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and so in that mutual awkwardness, uh, confusion was fomented. I'd like to come back in a few moments to some of these strange were, questions. Sorry, I, were you, you putting Tupney pieces into the phone box? <laughs> no, I was actually receiving a call. I was, he, had, he had rung me. Or was it pennies? There was only I one coin know. you could put in an Irish phone box. So the furthest away you rang, you would have had, had enormous right, sackful of, of coins. coins. Yeah, no, I wasn't doing that, I don't <laughs> think. Okay. Were you ever rung up on an island by a translator, Sebastian? No, no. no. We can get through that quick, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you then, Sebastian? What have been your, your well, good I, and it, bad? I was interested, because in, what, what Anna's talking about is the, it's, it's the, 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 the inner creature of the translator balking initially at what they're reading, because mm. they may be under the impression that the book is written in English. I mean, I, sometimes I have, it has been suggested that large swathes of my books could be usefully translated into English. <laughs> but the fact is, you know, we're not really writing in English, English. And I think that's the first thing the translator has to get past. So then they realize that something else is going on. The, the curious thing, I'm, this sounds so, so complicated, I won't understand what I'm saying either, so don't worry about it. But we are, you know, we are already... It, uh, translation is hotwired into us as a creature, as an Irish person. Because, and, and it's terribly complicated because some of us, uh, unlike you, I'd say, or, or Hugo, are translating from a language that we no longer know, which is Irish. And then somebody like me, who's probably Norman family from the 11th century, are also somewhere in the distance translating out of Norman French, and maybe Old English as well. And all the other little lost languages of Ireland, like Yola in Wexford. We don't really know what we're doing, which is part of the grace of, of Hiberno-English. There's not knowing what you're doing quality to it that I think is very attractive. But that whole business of, I mean, Yeats said rather majestically and perfectly, as Yeats said so many things, that, that Irish was his native language, but English was his mother tongue. But Yeats didn't know any Irish. So what sort of native are you when you don't? And so therefore, already in this lingo that we use, you're already in a state of tertiary translation. And it's sort of wonderful and doesn't matter that some of the languages you're going into, you have no idea their nature. And you must allow your book just go there, like it's on a journey. And you, and you accept that because you know in your heart you're already translating out of a language you don't know. Mm -hmm. 
for, which for me is Irish. Um, I would like to say just plainly that the Irish Literature Exchange, this whole thing, which sounds quite technical, quite, you know, quite on the, the money, Irish Literature, this has been the, one of the most magical engines in my lifetime as a writer. This whole thing of like the secret agency of translation, of giving translators money so that they'll take these odd preacherly books and turn them into other languages. To me, it has been the most thrilling thing. My most happy emails are from the lady in London who manages foreign rights, because I always know there's going to be a magic. I'll never forget the morning when, she, when, when news of the purchase of the Slovak and the Slovene rights had, you know, I didn't, to tell you the truth, I wasn't quite sure I knew anything about those languages until she said those magic words. So the magic of that, of disappearing, uh, there's a grace in disappearing for a writer. You know, we yearn in a way to disappear. We're being made visible all the time, but what we really want to do is sneak away. And sneaking away into all these languages is just magic. And the Irish liter Literature Exchange makes that happen. They are magicians. It's extraordinary to think of the, the lives that your books have in yeah. their different languages, because it's not going to be the same in... Slovak as it is in, I don't know, uh, any other language you care to mention. It's called, judging by what Anne has said and what happens with French, that, that the language... Yeah, I think that, that was early on in my career and I have been very satisfied, particularly with, uh, in subsequent uh, books and translations. I think they, they cop on to you mm -hmm. and yeah. they get your rhythms. And, and, and if I can identify my rhythms on a page, then I'm happy. And, and some... Languages are more intractable, uh, cadence-wise, mm. than others. Mm. So, for example, German is 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 a real t it's really test of a, you know if 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 it if it it's working somehow colloquially in German if they can because a German translation will always be twenty percent longer on, on the page than the original English. But mm. if you can look at it and say that sounds like the cadences that I put there, then then that's Pretty, pretty fantastically amazing. Because rhythm is 99% of it. the thing. It's like what, the pockets thing. It, that's a rhythm. And yet that is probably the thing that the poor translator will not catch, and the good translator will. And you're kind of out there, and your publisher is saying, well, there's a translator here, or there's a translator there. You're dependent, I suppose, on the quality of the translation. Um, to a huge extent, does that bother you? It's like throwing your voice. Mm. Well, it's sort of you lose it somewhere. I, I, yeah. I don't care. Well, Do I not. mean, when somebody no. marries you, they're at the mercy of your, your qualities that they don't know yet. So it's very much <laughs> the same thing. But hopefully, you know, it'll be a good marriage despite that. <laughs> We're willing to take the chance because being translated is actually an immense privilege. Wouldn't you agree? It's an amazing privilege. Uh, yeah, and... and, and Translators often look very tired and underpaid. Mm. They and there is, a, there is a moment of perhaps a small spark of aggression. Which it, well, <laughs> that well, you yes, put them through all of that, you know? But, but, but rightly so, because they're language wrestlers. They're, they're, it's yeah. a physical thing. They're wrestling this thing into, a, into their own sphere. Yeah. I think it's a tremendous thing. I mean, I think it's a, it's a sort of a mystery. It's a mystery as deep as the making of the thing in the first place. Yeah, in a funny way, it, it seems to me that it is as well. And, and they are uh, exhausted and underpaid and spend twice as much time as they're paid for doing it. And I suppose the really good ones will go to immense trouble. They do. But 
to come back to what you were saying, Sebastian, about, about that what we write in here is not English as it would be written in England. Do you know much about who's going to translate your books? Do you lay down the law about it? Do you say, I will only allow myself to be translated by somebody who has some familiarity with the way we express ourselves in English in Ireland, or, or not? I think, in generally speaking, the writer is that creature who does not lay down the law about anything. Just and this is why sometimes writers in, in, in oppressive regimes end up in prison quite quickly. We're not lawmakers. We're sort of... Um, dispensers of gratitude, trying to make our gratitude plain. You know, for rather silent people who spend a lot of time on their own in rooms, sometimes you forget, you know, to, to thank everybody. I've tried, one of the disciplines I've tried to learn is thanking people. You know, when translators get in touch with you, to thank them for their work, to thank the publishers for the work. Because how, why would you, what sort of judgment could you possibly make? I mean, you're, you're with, you're, the gods of translation are attending you or they're not attending you, you will never know, more or less. I mean, Hugo has an incredible access to that German translation of his book. I would have a minimal access to a French translation of my book, but minimal. I mean, the poverty of my uh, grasp of languages is almost infinite. You know, if, if it was translated into Latin, even though I have a degree in Latin, I still couldn't read it in Latin, <laughs> <laughs> even though I have it's a degree. It's actually a great way to learn a language or refresh what you have. Read your own book. Yeah, well, you could. Yeah. It would get a bit dull. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to, you know, bring up a bit of Spanish into your life, you'd probably be better off at Marquez than with uh, your own work. But it would, it, would, it would do something interesting, wouldn't it? Mm, it might. Hugo, do you feel uh, that you've ever felt like controlling what's happening or that you'd be worried about what they might do with you? Well, I, I always, always think it's better if you don't know the language. You don't have to worry about the... <laughs> the text and they can say anything um, because I you know German is the language I I know best and uh, I can worry then about sort of the rhythm of the thing if it's not working and you can never get the same rhythm in the in the German language as you as you would have in the English language um, <clears throat> the translator I have for in Germany he's he's a poet and a, a novelist himself and um, He's never been to Ireland, so he doesn't know Ireland. Uh, but he's a fantastic translator, and he's, he, he mimics the kind of the rhythm in his own way. But it ends up being quite different. But um, I, I, I like telling this particular story about the, in The Speckled People, he, there's a passage where my mother is traveling to Loch Derg on a pilgrimage, and on the way back, she gets lost. and has to seek shelter in this house. And so she's taken in, and the woman in the house offers her a, the, the bed in which she's going to sleep. And, she, and my mother asks, like, where is the man of the house going to sleep? And she, the, the woman in the house says, he's going to sit by the fire all night. So she was in the marriage bed. But anyway, <laughs> before they went to sleep, um, the man of the house insisted that my mother drank, drink whiskey. And then he raised a toast to Hitler and the Germans. Oh. And you can imagine what this sounds like to my mother. Uh, yeah. But anyway, he's, what the words he said he used was, uh, you know, fair play to Hitler and <laughs> fair play to the Germans. And uh, my translator translated that as, you know, Gerechtigkeit für die Deutschen. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, and in, in English, mm. that would be justice for the Germans. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and that just didn't sound right at all. <laughs> and right. At, so at what, did you <clears throat> see this before it was published? I did, you know, yeah. and I was lucky to kind of catch that one, you know, but I worry about all the other languages, you know. You know like, <laughs> What they're saying. But the reason you can't, your rhythms are so difficult in German is because the semicolon. Irish writers do things that <coughs> make other people, where they're taught properly and more formally. You know, they 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 do their abitur and they do their baccalaureate and they know right. proper writing. And then Irish writers just dash and punctuate yeah, like crazy, and they're going mad with the semicolon. Right. They just, I I have had somebody. Despair at the semicolon. The I don't. Use I of don't the semicolon <laughs> because it's a qualifying, say, you know, clause at the end of a sentence, and of course the Germans want to wrap up everything in one big long sentence, you know, with the verbs at the end. So I don't have any semicolons. semicolons. You do. And no, I don't have any of them in my books, and and there's and my new novel is full of them. Oh, okay. Okay. You must have in been German, reading you know. Anne Enright. You're, you're, it's catching. Semicolons. But the the other thing, interesting I, I think I found about translation is that. It's very difficult to translate flaws. You know, if a, a writer deliberately makes mistakes or, or warps the language in some way, it's almost impossible to translate that because your translator and your editor in the, in the new translation will, be, will send you a long list and say, did you mean to say this? Because, you know, flaws will make the translator and the, the publisher in Germany or wherever it is look very stupid. And so there's, there's something like that the original writer is allowed to do, uh, which the translator is somehow prohibited from doing. And a but a deliberate mistake? <clears throat> yeah. Deliberate mistakes, yeah. you know, and, uh, or, or, or even sort of a warp in the, in the, in the language. Um, that will read oddly in the translated language. It will just read oddly, language. and you, yeah. get, you get sort of long emails from your, from your publisher then saying, like... Uh, they just want to straighten it out. Yeah. <laughs> and because yeah. it makes them look uh, a bit odd. You know? Do you like having contact with your translators or not? When they ring you up? Well, I, I always Island. like it. Yeah, I always like it. I'm always interested. Um, uh, and then slightly despairing if they don't get something really obvious. You kind of worry about the rest of it. You sure would. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's mostly questions like what is a noble call? I mean, it's... it's and, and you find, um, and, uh, uh, you know, a, a colloquial slanguage, um, uh, but you do, f I think, more and more, they get, I don't know whether they have a website, but they, 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 the, the, the internet has really uh, improved their lives enormously, because they can check where the 46A goes, and they can, <laughs> you know, and all the things that they have a problem with become clear if they just, yeah. you know, Google. Yeah. Yeah. I gather some publishers really protect their writers from the translators, um, you know, and they don't don't want them to make contact. But but would you welcome it, Sebastian? Have well, you had it? well, English publishing is is based entirely, is incredibly polite, and um, they're very gracious, and they always say if you don't mind, you could possibly answer a few questions. But you possibly shouldn't mistake that for meaning, being a true question in a certain way. There is a, we need to feel protected without being protected, if you know what I mean, because you have to answer the questions that the translator is asking you. And I, I do like to hear from... I mean, it is, it's always by email. Nobody ever <coughs> rings you up, as you were about to say. Uh, I'm just still reeling at the thought of the speckled people 
as a sort of New Testament of the neo-Nazi movement in Europe. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still there with that, with that last revelation. Uh, what, and, uh, do, have you been, apart from the German, because obviously <coughs> that, that was straightforward for you, Hugo, but in terms of more unknown languages, have you had people approach you about specifics? No, I, I think it was funny, Anne was talking about covers, you know, like, I mean, I, I had virtually the same cover in all countries w with the Spectral Appeal, which is myself as a small boy. And there was some mix-up with the Italian publisher where they, I think what was happening was that the original British publisher asked them to pay for the picture that I had given them. <laughs> and so the Italian publisher just decided to put his own photograph as a child. <laughs> on the cover, and it looked as good to the, the Italians. The same one that you know? was on Anne's cover, probably. <laughs> yeah, there is a generic Irish boy to so, yeah. and <laughs> freckles. So, it's this, so that's how it was published, you know, with, so really? with the publisher's yeah. photograph when he was yeah. five years of age. I, I, th I, think, I think we need to remember, I mean, there, there's a sort, there are many necessary abasements that you can tell yourself as a writer, and one of them is how important at the end of the day, is language without rhythm. For me, rhythm is actually almost the language. It's the common language of the human creature, let's put it that way. It's the lingua franca. When I watched Moliere, my wife Ali in Paris, many years ago, we didn't understand a word of it. But we understood it because the actors were employing that Comédie Française rhythmic attack. Uh, and in my first play called Boscoides Boys, or second play, Anne was the stage manager of my first offer, but I've, I've erased it from the record, but just because she's sitting <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. uh, in my I first play, it, in the last, mm -hmm. the, one of the great actors of the Abbey Theatre, Mary Keane, was having enormous difficulty learning the one scene that she had. And w they wrote out the, the, the dialogue on... It was in a card scene, that, so it, first it was notes on a card, then the cards got bigger and bigger and bigger. But she still couldn't actually remember it even from reading it. In the first pre preview, she played it. And because she was a master, a master of timing and a master rhythmic actor, all the places where you would w yearn for laughter as a playwright, she got it. She was, she was actually talking gobbledygook linguistically, but her rhythm was perfect. Her understanding of, of rhythm was perfect, and the audience laughed. And the wonderful actor took over from her, because we had to recast her, was, was perfectly good in the part, but never got the laughter. Because, and it just made me think, is it how we, we pride ourselves on language, but maybe what we're doing really is accessing rhythms. So therefore, maybe the translator shouldn't be a classical pianist. You know, they should be a jazz pianist. They should have an intuitive understanding of this other music coming from the dark edge of Europe, as you might say, especially today, <coughs> and, and, and knowing how to, to reimagine that in, in whatever rhythmic thing is available to them. So it might be good if, if actually there's a sort of distance between that uh, and, what, and the book they've taken it from. Do you know, we should, we should be stepping back like good jazz players and allowing things rather than worrying, because worrying in all spheres of life, as we know, tends to constrict and, and stops the, the blossoming. I'm after the blossoming of language, but I do agree with Hugo that it is better not to know in a way, because then you can imagine an enormous blossoming, a sort of <laughs> rhododendronization of your book <laughs> in Serbia. 
around a big globe. Just everywhere yeah. blossoms. Yeah. You often don't have time. <laughs> you to know, deal with the nitty-gritty of the punctilious yeah, I mean, translator. You're, on, you're usually, it comes in four years after you wrote the damn thing. And you're busy finishing a, another novel. Mm. And, and so you don't have, you, you, ha, you it's, it's very difficult to look at old work let alone uh, interrogate it. Mm. Um, and it's very easy when you're asked a question by a translator to feel that you've made a mistake. And sometimes it's because you have made a mistake. And they've spotted it. And they've spotted it because they can't get it to work and, and they, they're not going to elide, they're not going to slide over it, they're going to come back to it because they're being beady about it. And so if you go through that process a few times, you start, it's a little bit like being edited in America where they don't understand for a living. I don't understand what this sentence is. And, you, and, and because Irish, uh, because as I started out going blah de blah de blah you know what I mean? And being slightly enthralled to rhythm, I think. They stop you and they say, well, actually, what's that second blah? It doesn't, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to translate for us. And, and so you're, it, it brings it in a sense of clarity or communication or... It's sort of a window suddenly on your work, and, and you say, "Oh, I want to make. Do, do I want to make that? Do I want to make that really clear?" And you, mm. I remember the L'Imaginaire Irlandais. What year was that, dear? And you, you, nineteen ninety six, curated it, <coughs> and a whole bunch of Irish writers ran around um, France, um, thinking, "God, this is brilliant," <laughs> which is a distinctive. You don't get it, British writers saying, oh "My God, isn't this brilliant?" They say, "Here I am." You know, we, we were like, "Wow, we were, we were like getting away kids. with it. It was fantastic." But, but to face a French audience who wasn't going to necessarily get your jokes or even to get your the cold go of you, yeah, suddenly makes you think: If I'm going to reach people, I can't do it on personality alone. I mean, and I mean personality in the in the in the texture of the prose that you, you do, it, it does discipline you to be translated or to, to, to look into translating eyes and go, okay. And just let it go. You want to know, it. you want to know something and I'm not letting you know because I'm fussing it up a bit, you know? So it kind of cleaned, cleans out the creative pipes a little somehow for me. Interesting. I, I, was, I was talking to um, Hans Christian Oeser who's mm. translated Anne and and Sebastian, you know, he's a brilliant translator. He's very uh, good. And like, he's, he works also with Gabriel Rosenstock, and they translate things into Irish from all, all this strange language. But he, he was saying that a translator's first duty is to the sense. He has to get the sense right. I mean, and, um, and he will have to sacrifice melody and rhythm and all, all of those other things that the writer has, has, has uh, intended for the work in order to get the sense. I mean, that's, that's, that's his first duty. You know? That's a bit worrying. I think that's, that's what he, he thinks he's doing. I'm I mean, he's, he's, a, he's, he's a gifted, <laughs> he's a gifted <laughs> translator, I think. Yeah, he's and he a can, very he can good. manage I think he's most wonderful. of that. Yeah, I, I do, yeah. <clears throat> but it is a huge challenge, is it not, for a translator <clears throat> to represent what you have creatively done in another language. It's almost like the other language is just a technical but thing. But sometimes you, know, you, you put don't words know if that's it. what they're doing and is it anything to do with you? I mean, there was the, the Chinese government <coughs> press bought up all my work and translated it all. And you think, what? Yeah. What? What What are they reading in Nanjing? Yeah. And 
Uh, what sense are they going to... Uh, actually, I say Nanjing because then I was subsequently introduced by a professor of English from Nanjing who gave the most erudite and, and, and humanly interesting uh, exploration of my work that I'd heard in, a, in a, you know, so there's a lot of people in China and some of them are exceptionally bright. But you kind of, <laughs> kind of think, what, yeah, are, what are they making of it? And, um, and of course, then there's a kind of racism in that. What, 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 why wouldn't they make yes, something? Indeed. <laughs> yeah. why, why wouldn't the professor from <coughs> Nanjing <coughs> be able to read my incredibly interesting it's prose? Hard. <laughs> uh, you know, but also yeah. if you do get that, which I got from this guy, I thought, oh, it coheres. That something about the tensions within the work that make it into a creative aesthetic object, that sense of cohering, he got that, how mm. it's put together, you know, mm. and that mm. that somehow was international and available. And it wasn't about um, social mores, it wasn't about manners, or it wasn't about how people conduct their marriages, their sex lives, or anything else, you know. I, I think it's interesting when you s talk about tensions. I mean, how do you translate something that's not in the text, something that's being withheld, mm. an absence? Mm. I mean, if you look at Beckett's work, or, or you know, there's a lot of writers you can talk about who, who sort of thrive on absences in, in, in their language. I mean, I, I think that's, that's quite interesting. And I mean, in my new uh, book, um, which is just we're coming out in September in Germany. Um, there was, I, I mentioned uh, the, the word cold and warm at, towards the end of the book, and I, I kind of make a play of these words, you know. And of course, it's to do with the temperature of water of, 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 uh, in, a, in a bath. Um, but of course, it means more than that. If you say in English, the cold and the warm, it could mean the cold people, the cold, the warm people. It could mean cold memories. It could mean a huge amount of things, you know. And I was looking at the again at the German translation, and the translator had literally translated it as the the cold and the warmth, die Kälte und die Wärme. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, no, that's not what I want. You know, I don't want it to be that specific. So there's an absence in those words, or it's sort of a shadow, sort of maybe a sort of a, a landscape in behind the word cold and warm, which I wanted to get, uh, sort of blankness. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there's a, there's a line then sort of says, you know, she was crying for all the cold and all the warm and all the cold again. Yeah. And so it was all the cold and the warmth and the cold, you know, I didn't like yeah. that. So I got back to them and said, I want, you know, she was crying for all the things that were cold and then turned warm and then went cold again. That's the closest That's the kind I could of a get. Compromise. You know? It was a compromise, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but as it never said, got exactly it's like what they I want. fix you, you know, if you say into the dark, they'll say into the darkness, but dark is the same thing as cold and warm there. Irish, yeah. maybe Irish... Well, that, that, that Usage allow, uh, allows that a little. Well, the, the other problem is, is it's not a problem. No. The circumstances that uh, I think this is what Hans Christian Oser is referring to about sense, is that I think what he means is they, a translator must check. The first thing he must check is that it makes sense. So you've, a book will have been through your your British editor, your American editor, which is another translation, by the way. It is. Uh, will have been. 
through the line editor, through the fact editor, you know, maybe six or seven very sharp-eyed people will have looked at it. But they're, what they're looking at it is, is it in terms of, say, of painting or, or the music. You know, is that right? But the translator is like the forensic mm. police person who must go into the room and, and, and look at everything in the room, pull the cupboard from the wall to find the bullet hole, and pull the painting down to find the fact that the painting is actually covering this enormous fault in the plaster. <laughs> so it is quite, yeah. it, there is a little element of humiliation when you get the notes, when somebody says, uh, you've set, put your character on a mountain that you can see from the back of your house, and they're looking at Dublin in the distance, and the translator tells you that if you stand on that mountain, because of course they've gone up the mountain to check, <laughs> you can't see Dublin from there. <laughs> what will we do? And you initially actually don't know what to do. Well, could we make the mountain higher? Could we get Dublin nearer the mountain? Do you know, because the other thing about a book is, a bit like the RHA exhibition, The Varnishing Day, <laughs> is that it stops at a certain point. I mean, yeah. some people go back and revise their work, but for me, there's a moment when the book stops. And then, I mean, for, for instance, Ulysses, which was typeset, if I may be wrong, by French typesetters, uh, as far as I remember, has had about 2,000 major, major errors in the text when it was printed. I think this is correct. I may be thinking of some other book. <laughs> 2,000 errors. I am sure that the original translators of, U of Ulysses faithfully reproduced all those typos in some you know, manic effort to reproduce the work, but they were actually errors. And I, I have to confess, and I would never say this in public, but my work is full of errors, all sorts of historical <laughs> and factual errors. So terrifying when I notice them that I just close the book quickly and pretend I didn't write. And uh, translators <laughs> occasionally do animadvert, as they used to say, <laughs> to these things and point them out to you and say, well, what do They're you think? They're a bit like Irish readers, actually. The, the guy says the 46A hasn't crossed mm. the Liffey since mm -hmm. 1953. Yes, he is, you know, he usually is walking up and down the seafront and, and, and praying, waiting, waiting to tell you that. Oh, fact, they loved that. Yeah. The grown-up yeah. answer <laughs> to that is, thank you very much for pointing that out, I'll yeah. change it. But mm. the writers, let's say the child's response is, well, you know, to hell with that, it does in this book. This is a <laughs> fictional 46A, and it'll always be running in this direction. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like a clash of two very different disciplines and different minds, Well, I don't really. know how they do it. It's yeah. interesting you mentioned Ulysses. When, when I was in Romania, a Romanian version of Ulysses came out, and um, I met people who read it, and, and they said it, and who had been in Dublin, and it said it doesn't, doesn't look like Dublin. <laughs> it actually looks like a big European city uh -huh. with large streets, wide streets, yeah. because just the words and just the descriptions, the way they fall in the Romanian language, you know, remind people of Paris. Had widened the streets. They widened the streets. As they did in bit. Paris so under housing. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, before we proceed any further, um, we have asked the writers if they would all read a little piece. Some of them may have chosen something which they thought was a particular challenge to translators, and some of them have just chosen something. So, Hugo, would you like to introduce the piece that you're going to read? Yeah, will I go up to here? Or well, whatever you like. Would you like to go if you're I'd comfortable? Go up to the, the <coughs> Why not? <coughs> yeah, I'm just going to read a passage from the new book every single minute, and it might explain the, the gaps or what um, 
um, what is missing from the text in a way. Sorry, I've lost it. <clears throat> Sorry, I just lost the text. Um, Take me a second. All right. There's, you know, there are things happening in the, in the story that um, are not actually said. <clears throat> I'm still trying to work out what's going on inside my own family. What went on after we saw my aunt and my father's brother coming out of the hotel in Cork? We had no explanation for it. We had the facts and we had the story, but no context. There was a lot of talking going on behind closed doors and the Jesuit, my father's brother, was no longer coming to our house with sweets in his pocket. We were told he was on retreat. He was having a crisis in his life. That's all my mother would say. I think she wanted to tell me more but she would not allow herself. I was afraid that she might have told my brother more than me, or that he was better at picking things up, and he was keeping it all to himself. She told me to pray for my father's brother, because he had difficult decisions to make. He had to make up his mind whether he was still living under the same roof with the Jesuits, or staying under the same roof with my aunt. We got no further explanation at the time. It was not something we were allowed to ask any more questions about. I'm not even sure my mother had an explanation to give herself. She was left trying to figure out why my father's brother was not coming to see us anymore. Had she done something wrong? I had no idea why my mother would be so upset about all this. My aunt didn't come to the house anymore either on her own or with the Jesuit. We were like a family left behind. My mother kept trying to contact him, but he was out of reach. She left messages, inviting him out to the house as before. She was ready to welcome him back again like a real Jesuit and put him at the head of the table with a cake in the middle, his favorite coffee cake, but he wouldn't come. Maybe he was afraid of my father, Maybe he thought my father would subject him to interrogation in the front room. What was he doing coming out of a hotel in Cork, arm in arm with my aunt, right in front of us when he was meant to be a Jesuit? My mother was unable to live without knowing. So one day, she decided to go in and see my father's brother face to face. I don't know if my father was even aware of her going to visit his brother on her own. She went on the bus, two buses in fact, to get to the red-bricked house where the Jesuits lived under one roof together. She had a long walk up the drive with the windows of the building looking out over the person arriving. She said she thought she saw my father's brother watching her from one of the windows but she didn't want to wave at him in case it was another Jesuit. She walked up the granite steps and rang the bell beside the brown door. It takes a while before one of the Jesuits appears. 
you can hear doors opening and closing and footsteps coming along the corridor. And when the Jesuit finally comes, it's the wrong Jesuit. He let her in to the reception and went to find the right Jesuit, my father's brother, our Jesuit, wherever he was. So that took more time and she was left sitting there listening out for doors opening and closing, hoping it was him, the right Jesuit, the Jesuit in our family. She was told that my father's brother was busy in prayer. He could not be disturbed. The Jesuit was very polite, as always, speaking as if he was only allowed to use the least amount of words. He said it would be a while before our Jesuit was available, so perhaps it might be better to come back another time. My mother said she would be happy to wait. I think it might have been an hour, maybe more. They didn't offer her anything, no tea and biscuits, only the same Jesuit coming back to see if she had gone home yet. She was sitting with her coat still on in the small reception room, surrounded by magazines about the missions and the new schools being built. The same room where I had to meet my father's brother once or twice for causing too much trouble at home and once more to discuss sexual matters, something to do with a man and a woman. That's what it was called in our family, things that happened between a man and a woman even though it was too embarrassing to speak to my father's brother about anything at all. He didn't really have much to say about any man or any woman, and neither did I, so we left it at that. My mother said she was not leaving until she had spoken to him, and when he finally came to see her, he sat down on the far side of the room with his hands still in prayer on his knees, staring at the floor, as if she was not even in the room, and it was only the Holy Order magazines left. Just tell me, my mother said. She wanted to know the truth, that was all. She wanted to hear it from his mouth. He looked up at her and thought for a long time about what he was going to say, carefully selecting his words. But then he told her nothing just made it clear to her that he was not going to answer any of her questions. He was even more full of silence than ever before, if that's possible, to be full of something that does not exist. He had nothing whatsoever to say to her. He was used to people confessing everything to him. He was not going to turn around and start confessing everything to my mother. She had the wrong Jesuit. What he was thinking had nothing to do with her. It was none of her business what went on between a man and a woman. It's my business, that's all he said. Then he got up and left her sitting there empty-handed. He didn't shake hands or embrace her. He just disappeared. She came home by the same long driveway with the well-kept lawns and the windows staring at her, two buses, the same journey in reverse with no explanation. And maybe that was the explanation. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Hugo.
that was so lovely to listen to. Chilling. Um, tell me, do you, do you think, all of you, about why your translators select some certain ones of your books and not others? Or why your translators or your publishers? I presume it's the, it's the publishers internationally who make um, that selection. The, um, uh, the whole issue of uh, literary reputation and uh, commercial viability gets really odd when it's translated. <laughs> it's hard enough to say what it is in the first instance, but to then it is some uh, synergy of the right translator, the right publishing house, the right time. And if, as it happened to me in Paris, your publishers die, that's not going to help. But <laughs> then in some other territories, like an ongoing relationship that I've had with a publisher in Holland from the very beginning, and they've published all my work, and that, that has been kind of wonderful. And you say, well, why Holland, you know? Um, uh, it, and it, it sort of pains me to do well in some places and really not well in the places with the really nice food. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say with the big populations and lots of money that'll buy more books. Well, the Germans go out and they buy books in hardback and they read those books in hardback and it's uh, an amazing, um, serious, educated market. It's interesting, you know. Yeah. Well, the French do the same, but not for me. Oh. <laughs> well, I can see France is becoming a bit of a problem. We'll have to see what can be done there. <laughs> um, uh, Sebastian, how about you? Do you ever? Um, I've probably sold three books in German, but I'm happier in Fr Paris. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, what, what like, do you wonder why? why uh, well, why I, is it I that do sort of know why, because I'm do you? 35 years trying to understand the why of writing. And, it, for instance, Annie Dunn, uh, one of my, was a very quiet little book. I mean, it, uh, when I was in Beijing, at the same time when it was published in Chinese, there was a very beautiful Chinese man who sat there beside me in Beijing in a very modern hotel, passionately telling me about Annie Don. In a way as if he thought he needed to tell me because obviously I didn't know, <laughs> you know, even though I had written the book. Yeah. And that was a wonderful experience because he was actually giving me the book back in yeah. verbal form, yeah. in broken English. And it was, it was, an, it was an enchantment. But the, Annie Don has probably, probably been published you know, in four languages. The Secret Scripture has been published in 36 languages. I mean, the reason has to be commercial at a certain level. It doesn't mean that publishers wouldn't love to, to do the other book, you know, but they just can't justify it to themselves to do it because it, they're touching on so many mysteries. Because it, there's another mystery is that a book that might sell half a million copies in England you won't be able to sell it at all in Argentina. So what is that? What does that mean? It's not just about the translation. There's some other magical thing turning on that that nobody knows. I mean, is that we always say in the theatre, nobody knows anyway, you know, until the day you open. And, then, and as Woody Allen says, there are not many professions where you're setting yourself up for public humiliation in the newspapers the next day. And, and this is one of them. So nobody knows. They take a punt on it, as we'd say, although we don't have punts 
Maybe it's the other punt. Is it the one that you... Um, <laughs> speaking of translation. Uh, they take a punt on it if, if there the, the looks like a fair wind in the sales of the book elsewhere. That has to be an issue for them, of course. I suppose it must be, Because it's yeah. immensely expensive. They can also be passionate. I mean, they, they can also... Uh, or, or passionately against. They, they can say, no, 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 that was huge in America, but we're not interested. Or, you know, yeah, they, I mean, they, they, have, yeah. they have their personal taste at play it, as well. Well, personal. You know, it yeah. is personal. I mean, the whole of writing is so personal. It sometimes is elevated to another kind of global scale, but it's terribly personal. I mean, for me, the reason I love being published in French is because when I lived in Paris, in the Rue Clotaire and the Charme de Bonne, I was so poor that I couldn't go... I would have been ruinous to go into a Parisian cafe and buy a cup of coffee. That would have been my finances gone for the week. It's so wonderful to go over to Gallimard and, and be able to, you know, actually go and buy a cup of coffee in a, in a, and think... And being published in that language. I mean, the intoxication of it. Yeah. It doesn't... Nothing really matters except that. The, the wildness of it, to be, in, to, to be in other languages. How could that be? When I am still, in a sense, that 22-year-old boy at, at the top of that house, writing my first short stories, yeah. and feeling that I was by easily the equal of Yeats and Joyce, as you must when you're a little fellow, you know. <laughs> and that sort of wonderful arrogance that you need as, as a young writer. And then to have gone through the wars and battles of writing and get to the point where you realize that everything, nothing was written, nothing was guaranteed. It's all miraculous. If you, you, know, if you have a little publisher in Mullingar, you're fortunate. Do you know? Yeah. And to have the fortune of being in 40 or something languages, it, it, is, it, it can make you a little bit drunk, you know, especially as a non, mostly a non-drinker like myself. That's an intoxication. You get a bit crazy in the head thinking about it. It is magic when it you describe magic. it like that. Because anyway, language is already magic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because yeah. we're only this upright ape stand, standing on our back legs trying to reach the higher apples. What did we need with language anyway? And what in the name of God are stories? And why are we doing this? <laughs> Do you know, the whole thing is so magical. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, let's, let's have um, another reading. I think we'll, we'll, we'll just go in the order in which mm -hmm. you're sitting. And what are you going to read? I'll read from The Forgotten Waltz, which is my most recent novel. Um, I won't read. I'm finishing a book at the minute. You always get... You always but I won't read from that because it hasn't been translated. And um, <laughs> I, I chose this little passage because it, it, it's ostensibly cheerful enough. Um, but it, um, it's kind of an example of something that is quite culturally dense. People will recognize the cultural references in it. But actually, what I, I want to also do is to kind of point the, the fact that it's about cadence rather than about getting the references right somehow. But this is a couple who are buying a house uh, when the boom is still booming, and uh, uh, Gina is uh, going to marry Connor. And she says, it's about four minutes long, the reading. Connor had just finished a master's in multimedia. He was a happening geek. I was also in IT, sort of. Is he sort of? How would you translate that? Because everyone in IT is sort of in IT. Um, I was also in IT, sort of. I work with European companies mainly on the web. Languages are my thing. Not the romance languages, unfortunately. I do the beer countries, not the wine. Though I still think the umlaut is a really sexy distortion, the way it makes you purse your mouth for it. All those Scandinavian O and U sounds give me the goosebumps. I went out with a Norwegian called Axel once just to hear him say, Schnurt. <laughs> 
But I went out with Connor for the laugh and I fell in love with him because it was the right thing to do. How could this be possible that in all the time I knew him, he never did a cruel thing? There was no big decision to buy a house, it just made sense. Australia was our last fling. After that, everything was salted away for deposits and mortgage insurance and stamp duty and solicitor's fees. Jesus, they wrung us till we squeaked. I can't remember what this did to the love we were supposed to be in. I can't recall the nights. Ours was, anyway, a daytime kind of love. Connor took up windsurfing out at Seapoint and came back smelling of chips and the sea. On Saturday afternoons, we tramped around other people's houses, three-bed semi-Victorian terrace penthouse flat. We looked at each other, standing beside 30s mantelpieces, and sort of squinted. Or we wandered into separate rooms where we could imagine ourselves in the space more easily, with a wall knocked or a smell gone, or the place less uninhabited. We did this for months. We got quite good at it. I could walk into some kip and slap at tobacco brown leather sofa up against the longest wall on site. I could dangle a retro lampshade as soon as he said 50s semi and stick an Eames chair under it and switch on the light. But I didn't know what my life would be like in that chair or how I would feel about it. Better, no doubt. I was sure I would feel serious yet playful, grown up and happy. I would be somehow fulfilled. But then again, as I said to Connor, then again. There was, when we made love at the end of these long Saturdays, a sense in which we were reclaiming ourselves for ourselves after some brief theft. You walk into a stranger's house and it's exciting, that's all. And you are slightly soiled by it. I could feel it in the second-hand abandoned kitchens and in my Sunday supplement dreams. I could feel it drain away in the moments after waking when I realised that we hadn't bought, we probably never would buy a house with a sea view. It didn't seem a lot to ask, a house that would clean your life every time you looked out of it. But it was, apparently. It was far too much to ask. I did the figures up, down and sideways and I never could believe the bottom line. The bottom line was the place we'd started out from before we lost the plot. The bottom line wasn't so much a house as an investment, somewhere to swing our cat that was not too far out of town. So we found exactly that, a townhouse in Klonski for 300 grand. We were the last in, bought off the plans, drank a bottle of Krug to celebrate, all 120 euros worth Krug, no less. It was nice. I loved Connor then. I really did love him. And all the versions of him I had invented in those houses in my head, I loved them all. And I loved some essential thing too, the sense of him I carried around with me which was confirmed each time I saw him, or a few strange seconds later. We knew each other. Our real life was in some shared headspace. Our bodies were just the places we used to play. Maybe that's the way lovers should be. Not these besotted, fuck-witted strangers that are myself and Sean, these actors in a bare room. Anyway, before our lives became a desolation of boredom, rage and betrayal, I loved Sean. I mean Connor. Before our lives became a desolation of boredom, rage, and all the rest of it, 
I loved Connor Shields, whose heart was steady and whose body was so solid and warm. The weekend after contracts were exchanged, we went into the unfinished house and looked around. Then we sat on the concrete floor and held hands. Listen, he said. What? Listen to the money. The place was going up by 75 euro a day, he said, which was, he did the calculations under flickering eyelids, about five cent a minute, which didn't seem like much, I thought, which seemed almost piffling after all we'd been through. Still, you could almost feel it, a pushing in the walls. The toaster would pop out fivers. The wood of the new laid floors would squeeze out paper money and start to flower. And for some reason, we were terrified. Don't tell me otherwise. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Anne. I'm intrigued. I'm just thinking, do you, because you, all three of you, attend, uh, I mean, the, the facts and figures from Isle, the number of Irish writers who, with their support, uh, attend and speak at festivals all over the world, and, and then those who don't need Isle's, sorry, Isle's support who also do it. When you read in those places, you read in English, presumably, to... Yeah, it varies. It varies. Uh, but it, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful and strange semi-ambassadorial role that you're going there, you have to be clean, sober, on time, smiling with your shoes polished, right? <laughs> Which is the modern Irish writer's way. You don't <laughs> slob up and be a, a drunken genius or anything like that. And then you read material which can be quite challenging and mm. quite, uh, you, know, you know, you're engaging on some level. You're not actually, you, you might try and do a little Irish smile, but you're not going to be in any way lovely. And so that's kind of interesting. <laughs> but in Do Germany, you. it depends. Sometimes if you can, if you can swing it, they, they, they go for an hour and a half. You have to have biscuits to keep you going. And, <laughs> and they translate everything. So yeah, that was sometimes... The I mean, huge stamina in Germany. Huge stamina. So I, I now hours. take the questions in German and answer in English. And that does it because it interrupts all your rhythms and all your jokes. It must do. Yeah. So, I mean, what the, why I asked was, would they, if you have read in English to, let's say, a German-speaking audience, do they ever read the German version at the same time oh, the or time. not? I've heard of I that I was happening. at a three-day conference at a load of academics years ago in Valberberg, which is outside Berlin, and you saw them making little notes, and I thought they were going, humour? Question mark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I did the full thing. But actually, of course, they're just, they're just not up to speed yet. You know, mm. it's like they laugh afterwards. It's great. It's great when you're um, in a, in a foreign country and you you don't understand the language and you, you you crack a joke and you hear the joke echoing about sort of five minutes later <laughs> when the translator has tr told it, you know. And there's also you know some brilliant simultaneous translators. Have you ever done that on radio where they actually speak oh, almost yeah. simultaneously? And it's like having a conversation and you were actually speaking in French. Yeah. You know, I was at a festival where there was a, a Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese <coughs> guy interviewing Ma Jan, who's from Beijing in Chinese, and there, were th there was trilingual translation, and it was just a whole 
room of people who didn't understand a fucking word. Really, really, really didn't it work. It can be something of a circus, yeah. really, can't it? When, yeah. when, when that takes off. Sometimes uh, in France, because I lived there, but not that I speak French, but for some reason under the pressure of an event in France, I do break into French. And then my translator thinks they've gone insane. <laughs> and they're desperately trying to translate my French, which needs translation. But recently, or a couple of years ago in Paris, um, I was, they were making a presentation to the booksellers. And for some reason, insane moment of courage, I said, well, I could actually, if I spend a little time in my room, I could actually read a few passages in the French. Which I then, but it was as if I was reading for the first time at the age of six. I was so frightened. Because mm -hmm. usually I'm not frightened. I mean, I'm just so grateful that the audience comes. But this, on this occasion, it was absolutely terrifying. Because it was as if I was speaking, almost speaking. I mean, I, I was a little boy who couldn't read until he was eight or nine or so. So the language was always a huge difficulty. And to have been, had the folly to say I would do this tiny thing, and they were so lovely and helpful and everything. But I, I do remember the terror of doing it. Just yeah. suddenly being in another language. And you realize it's far, far, far away, mm. do you know? Yeah. Suddenly you're far, far away from yourself when you're mm. doing it. Mm. On which note, you might like to read us something yourself. In and English. we won't ask you to well, do it Well, Hiberno-English anyway. Yeah. Okay. I thought I'd read something that, um, just for the pure coincidence that it takes place uh, during the First World War, not too far from here. I'm not sure where we're pointing, but somewhere here is the the old uh, police yard in the castle where my great-grandfather was one of the last superintend chief superintendents. His office was, if you look down, if you come out of this building and look left, you see an archway. And his office was, was above that archway, or so I was told. And right beside it is a rather nice house where my uh, great-aunts and uncles grew up. And which is now the Irish drug squad. So I've been a bit, a bit afraid to go in and ask them, could I see the inside of the place, and, and in case they keep me there on a permanent basis. But anyway, this therefore takes place only a few yards from here, and it's not often you can do that. And which also brings you to the idea in translation of when you're translating, what net are you using, and what fish are you trying to catch in your net? Because for us, some, some, some of us who grew up in Dublin, Dublin Castle is such a momentously ambiguous set of buildings with all sorts of terrifying events that took place in here. And uh, many of us with secret members of our family who were fully involved in some of these things on both sides, uh, how do you translate that? Uh, and maybe you can't. So maybe these are some of the absences Sometimes there are the terrifying absences that, that uh, Hugo is referring to. But anyway, this is just a little moment where Willie Dunn, who is the, literally the hero of this book, he's away at the war. He's come back so quickly from the front in his uniform that he hasn't had a chance to wash. Uh, and he arrives at his father's quarters, wherever it is, uh, in, in very dirty. And his little sister is called Dolly, and then there's Maud and Annie, who are his bigger sisters. And it's just a tiny, it's just two pages. And it also, I mean, how do, how do translate, no, how do, it's not how do we know, but how, do the, how does the translator know that they've carried poignancy into their version? I mean, I can't go to Romania 
and watch somebody reading this in Romanian and maybe check if there's a tear coming down their cheek. So that's another thing, poignancy. All the cargoes, all the various fish of a, of a book. So, I mean, we have to allow their magisterial uh, dimension, of the, the magisterial dimension of the translation. I mean, what a job. So I hope I've said enough about where it is and all the rest of it. Anyway, so he's just arrived back in. Now his father came up from the yards with little Dolly led by the hand. And Dolly broke from her father's grip and came running without a word to Willie and hugged his dirty legs. Willie stroked her head gingerly, adoringly. She was adding her happy tears to the soiled uniform. There you are, Dolly, said Willie. There you are at last. Ah, Willie, Willie, said his father, all the great height of him in the wide waistband straining as ever. The veritable hero returns. How are you, Papa? And I've missed you. I hope you got all my letters. And I hope you got all mine. I got many, and I suppose it was all of them, and you were very kind to think of writing to me. My God, Willie, he said. It was my honor to write to you. Willie, Willie, said Dolly. What are you after bringing me? He hasn't had a chance to do anything, I'm sure, said his father. Leave the lad be. We'll go down to Duffy's after Dolly and see what big gobstopper she has for us, said Willie, a little abashed. You will, of course, said his father. Then he cleared out the bigger girls and Willie stripped out of his uniform and his long johns and his father bagged them up and opened the rear door and flung them out to Maud and Annie for ginger boiling. Dolly sat in an old chair. It was a finely carved one, but very spindly, that had been their mother's special chair in the bedroom of old, a dress chair. Dolly watched the show gleefully, swinging her legs like a clock gone mad. Can we not come in? Annie teased, and her father roared back at her like she was a rascally hen advancing into the house against the wishes of the yard woman. So James Patrick, a man of six foot six, stood his son William, a man of five foot six, into the steaming zinc bath, as indeed Willie's mother had done a thousand times when Willie was a boy. And it was a strange enough thing to see the policeman throwing on the accustomed moleskin apron, kept for the purpose, no doubt, of washing still, and fetching in close the basin with the big sponge and the carbolic soap. And he lathered the sponge up mightily, and he started to lave his son from head to foot, cascading the water neatly over everything. And the lice must have been flying from Willie Dunn, just like those poor men in Sackville Street from the Battens. And soon the water was speckled with them, little writhing white creatures. He saw under the suds or through them that his skin was all blotched with red circles, so he supposed he had the ringworm into the bargain. Certainly the nits must be in his head, because it was terrible itchy now in the steaming heat. But his hair was only recently cut as short as the Viceroy's lawn, so the knits had not much chance against his father's knit comb, which he wielded now like a delicate surgeon, combing out the eggs. Then he asked his son politely to step out, and he fetched the big sheet from the range in the scullery and came back in and wound it round and round his son till he sucked the wetness of him. Then a pair of clean long johns of his father's was fetched and the legs had to be rolled up and the arms and then Willie put on his old working suit 
from when he used to go out building. His uniform would be a while drying, what with the heavyish material in it. Then, when he was all shipshape, his father put his big arms around him and held him close to him for a few moments, like an actor on the stage. It was not a thing you would see in real life anyway. And there was a faraway look on his father's face, like it was all years ago and otherwise. And maybe they were still in Dorky and he was a little lad. But he was a soldier now of some 19 years. And for all that he was glad of his father's arms around him, strange as it was. But he was a soldier now of some 19 years. And for all that, but for all that, he was glad of his father's arms around him, strange as it was, strange and comforting as it was. Come on and get a hat on, Dolly, and we'll go. And we'll go. Okay. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. Do you know, it strikes me, having heard all of you read the impossibility of translation. <laughs> you know, it really does. I don't know what, what you feel, but you, you just think, how could you possibly render that using a different... It's almost like pushing it through another layer that would that would rob it of its meaning in some way. Well, it's a major task. I mean, how yeah. how is a book written in the first place? And then for them to have to to be looking at whatever it is, the anthill or the Matterhorn, whichever it might be, and then to have to recreate that. I think only the, the only option is encouragement and cheer them on. Cheer do you think on. that you get they get we get that both translators and writers get? We spend our days w with sort of picking out. I, I, I'm so I have to apologise to Hugo for accusing him of semicolons. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't. A, I, I thought maybe there was one. Maybe that that should have been perhaps one. <laughs> but but it's like Flaubert said. It's like picking fleas, right? You're 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 endlessly small in your attention to the language, not just in terms of punctuation. But that once you're in there, you're in the texture of it, and you're, you, you know, I mean, you're, it's like chiseling. It's like putting things together, and the translator gets right back in there. Yeah. And so yeah. they're putting things together, and that's something about the structure of how we create language is universal. To be Chomskyan about it, not just in terms of the rhythm, but in terms of how sentences and sense make, you know, mm. happen in our brains, and that if you spend your day not sunk into it, but literally working it, that then that, that, that something is communicable, mm. repeatable in some way. In, I, I sometimes think translation is like killing a dead thing. When Sebastian said they have to come in and pull the wardrobe, I was thinking they have to come in and kill the thing you've already killed. So, you know, but but yeah. no, it's, it's the opposite of that somehow. It's to, ooh, I was, ooh, it's to give birth again. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> to actually, I heard a woman on the radio giving birth to my child when there was um, uh, when I had a book called Making Babies, and and an actress was on Radio Four giving birth to my daughter. That was very strange. She just had to switch <laughs> that off. And that was in the same language. It was in English, but that was another yeah. peculiar translation. Mm, mm. It is. It's it's an extra. Sorry. No, I, I want to go back to what Sebastian said initially. Like, is is that a book is a translation? in itself, 
isn't isn't mm -hmm. that more or less what mm -hmm. you're saying? You know, it is a translation of feeling, story, whatever it is. It's a, an attempt to put into words what we imagine in in our lives, or uh, and it's an attempt to understand the world in some ways. And I think each language has its own way of of understanding the world. And um, I think that's something that was brought clear to me very early because I'm trilingual. I'm sort of w working in, in three languages, even as a, as a child. And, you know, when my mother says something about a table, it's a completely different table. It's a different landscape mm -hmm. to when my father talks about the table. Mm -hmm. Or when it's, you know, when it's mentioned in Irish, to me, it's a different place. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and I think... That happens to me all the time, and it, it, it's what happens in, in, in translation in, in books, is that when you convert to a different language, like the Irish language, like you are in a smaller country, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a more familiar country. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens to me when I go to Germany. I'm, I'm in a different place. I have a different outlook on the world, a different mm -hmm. history, of course. And, but all of that comes into play in, 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 in terms of, of books. And... On a, on a minute level as well, for me, I, I, I've noticed this like that when I see a, something, it will come to me in a particular language first, and there's a kind of simultaneous translation going on. Like something like a, a lobster will always come to me in, in German first, Hummer. And then it then gets tra translated into Irish, Glimmuck, and then lobster finally. Mm. So, so it's this kind of whirring. You probably hear the whirring going around in my head when I. <laughs> But yes. it's, but each of those animals are—they're three different animals. Um, well, is one of them more edible than the other, or is <laughs> it, what, what, what's the difference between them? Hummer, Glimmach is much nicer. Glimmach is lovely. Glimmach is lovely. Yeah. Hummer sounds like mm. a Humvee, like uh, like a yeah, shelled it's, vehicle, it's like a exactly, yeah, uh, yeah. like a. <clears throat> do you think in terms of carapace and shell when you're saying Hummer, or do you? Sorry. No, it's yeah, yeah. No, it's association an association with where I learned the word first, you know, and it's association with the language and and uh, I don't I don't know what language I saw the creature in first, but you know it's it's. Um, and would it, would each of those have a different sort of um, concatenation of association? I'm just saying, would you go from Hummer to the shell? Would you go from Glimmach? To the colour, would you? Do you know what I mean? If you were putting it in sentences, would it? Yeah, I mean, it's would it feel? <coughs> what is a hum, what, what different? Sorry, what difference <laughs> does a hummer have to a glimmer? It depends it's on the person. Yeah, no, it depends. It's, it's 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 particularly it's just placed in where where I heard it first, mm -hmm. what stories mm -hmm. I connect with 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 it. Um, you know, I, I I actually think it's the first first time I heard about glimmer was uh, you know in in the Irish language, you know. In Connemara, so I have a particular memory of it. You know, yeah. it's the context, uh, really, isn't it? And it's, it's, the, it's the voice. But yeah. you, you're talking <coughs> about three voices, so there are three voices working in your head, in yeah. a way. Whereas mm. you've got maybe, as mainly monoglot people, one voice working in your head, and you're giving the second voice away to somebody else, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. Yeah, uh, well, you know, what, what Sebastian was talking about earlier on is a kind of, you know, an endless recession into some, that we're all speaking Sanskrit, really. Um, <laughs> you know, that some Ur uh, language is there, which is perhaps a little like my Chomskyan thing. But I, I, 
I don't necessarily associate language and loss in the same way as, as either of you, actually. Well, we're also the sum of everything we've read, which is another challenge for the translator, because they wouldn't necessarily have read the, 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 the books that an Irish writer of my generation would read mightn't be terribly different from writer to writer, I don't know. But there's certainly, from my education at Trinity College, there'd be a certain amount of English books and a certain amount of, in my case, Latin books that I would have read, would have a huge... I mean, even the Maupassant that I read at school, we had a wonderful French teacher at school, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was reading Maupassant at school without noticing that it was in French, if you understand. Mm -hmm. And the whole, I I, there's never a day that goes by I don't think about some of those stories, the dogs being thrown down into the marl pit. Uh, and also Gus Martin's uh, English book mm -hmm. with these incredible poems and, and uh, bits of things in them. I uh, have had a profound, and a translator couldn't possibly go to the trouble of assume, uh, acquiring all that sort of knowledge. And then what do we make of, say, Joseph Conrad, well, yeah. who is Polish-speaking in northern yeah. Ukraine as a child, and then his next language that he is French, but who said the only, the, only, the only time he became a writer is when he learned English around the age of 22, and who spoke it imperfectly with an accent for his whole life, yeah. and yet has the most complete, the most extraordinary idiosyncratic, almost eccentric grasp of the English language. Yeah. So what, what on earth is that? I mean, in a way, it's an invitation to all people who come into another culture, never worry about the language who gives you your passport. Do you know what I mean? Like, language yeah. decides what uh, where you're a citizen of, I think. I mean, I'm not even sure I speak proper English in any sense of the word. Uh, and I don't even know what I write, what the language is that I write. Mm. But I do know it's a sort of nationality. And I do know I live in there, and I do know that there's a strange invisible passport that has this stuff written down in it, yeah. that this is my language. And I love, in a way, the fact that I don't know the origins of some of it, and I also don't know the destinations of some of it. Yeah. As it, since you raise it, and one last thing, and then maybe we'll go to the audience if you have a few questions. Um, are, there, are there authors in translation whom you have read? When, um, that, <coughs> that, that, I mean, we're, we're talking about you being translated out, but presumably your literary formation included authors whom you have read in translation, you know, whether it's Dostoevsky or, or whoever. I, have you ever thought about that in the context of what's happening to your own work being translated? Well, hugely, and we, t we make a huge act of faith in translation when you think about it. Yeah. Because we never question, in a way... I mean, Hans Christian Andersen, who, who I was interested in for a while, and, and in, in his fate as a person in the world, whose ambition was to be the great poet of Denmark, or the, if not that, at least the great novelist, but turned out to be the great story writer. Or yeah. he, he didn't even want to call them children's stories. Uh, he was translated in England, was it by Constant Garnish or somebody, who made them very twee and whimsical, and that's what the English loved about them. But actually, they're not in any way twee or whimsical in the original, uh, and can be translated in much more severely, uh, and not as children's stories. So sometimes the misapprehension, the misunderstanding of the work, has a kind of currency in a country and shouldn't mm -hmm. be gainsaid. Mm -hmm. I mean, let us accept yeah. all forms of life <laughs> for our wretched uh, works. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Um, and it's something like the shape is retained then. And that, you know, if you are building a, an aesthetic object, it is about, finally, about shape. 
I um, sometimes go, uh, would, um, I mean, if a writer like Flaubert, who, who is so wonderful, I mean, interesting, Nabokov wrote in English, although he was a Russian emigre, but with Flaubert, I, 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 you know, if he's, just if you, it's just like doing yoga for your brain or something. If you want to improve your flexibility, go back to that first, that long sentence in the first two pages of Flaubert that swoops like this big, you know, like this crane shot out through the village and ends up with the felt slippers, the fe the uh, of of the I can't remember who it is who's walking down the street. And if you read, the, there's immense pleasure in reading brilliant writers in their own language, which is that I'm saying all the wrong things, or spend, you know, a, a few days with a page of Marquez because somebody said to me, you know, Marquez is wonderful, but in Spanish it's like honey. Yeah, and you just want yeah. that honey, yeah. and 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 you just if you spend a day, and my Spanish is useless, but you just spend a little time just feeling how those words go together, and it sort of tickles me in in some wonderful way. I sort of feel I could, you know, speak Spanish. <laughs> Sorry, Hugo, did you want to say something? I was about to. No, it's, it's, it's interesting about Joseph Conrad. You know, writing in a different language is a bit like Beckett. It's kind of an mm. overcompensation. Uh, for you know the, the you know I th I th and I think in some ways like that's what writing is about. It's a, it's compensating for some other inadequacy or some vacuum, mm. and we're trying to kind of put a story out there. Mm. Um. Okay, we'll leave it here for a, s a second or two before we finish up and go to the audience because uh, one thing does strike me: we've been speaking just to writers. Are there any translators in the room who might have uh, a thing or two to say? Now, I'm not asking for long contributions. We've got <coughs> 10 or 15 minutes left uh, at most. But uh, if you have any apposite questions, yes, there's a gentleman over here. Um, would you hold on for a second? There's a microphone on its way to you. Um, you've been talking about um, your work being translated, your prose work being translated into foreign languages, whether it's French, German, Slovene, Slovak, um, whatever it might be. But poets have this terrible habit of translating. They, they obviously, they write in their own language, whether it's English, French, whatever. Um, but they also survive and thrive on translating foreign writers, say, into English. So I'm really just wondering, have either of you in the past tried to do that, to translate say Dostoevsky, for example, or Flaubert, into English, and how helpful, uh, how useful is it for you to do that? Well, Oops. Yeah, I spent uh, six weeks of my life with Pierre Gint, oh, which is a very long play, but Rough Magic was doing a uh, version, and they, I was ordered to translate Pierre Gint <laughs> by Lynn Parker. You don't, so I sat down for six weeks and had an immense pleasure of... of Looking at the original, word by word, and 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 really digging in just to, to a couple of pages of it. It took me six weeks, and you, you, uh, I was just looking at it today. I mean, I think I did the first scene of Pierkint, and I realised it would take me the rest of my life to do justice to this, and that I had spent maybe a week thinking of how to. You know, there's a bit where the stag jumps off the, 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 the top of the mountain and, and goes through all these levels of gulls and, and clouds and everything and hits the lake and he sees the white of its flank. Anyway, the writer is 
much, I mean, so, so good. And in the Norwegian, which I'm told is more like Danish than Norwegian, you have to get, get really complicated and political about the languages as well as everything else, um, is, is, is really compressed. And I had three parallel translations, some of which went on long and some of went, but none of them got it as, as down like, like, like the original. So I'm saying the wrong things, but this is just what I, what I felt about that experience, that it was amazing to see his mind work in a way that could not be in some way translated, that it was so concise. I mean, there are, there are then issues politically, as I say, about the, the type of language that's used and all the rest of it. And I realized that it wasn't up to the task, but I had immense pleasure doing it. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Could, could I just ask, would anybody like to comment on, on what the questioner said about poetry? Because we haven't um, got people who are mainly poets on the panel. So, I mean, it's a whole other area, the whole business of translation of poetry. But does anybody want to comment on his remarks on that? or? Well, I, um, you are... Have sorry. Go ahead, Sebastian. Yeah. Uh, well, I spent first, I don't know, six years of my working life mm. trying to write poetry. Mm. And... Uh, in the Harry Ransom Center, if you ever go there to see my, the contents of my waste paper basket, or my archive as they call it, um, you will see quite short poems, 14 line poems, that have maybe 150, 200 pages of drafts. And the reason for that is, I mean, I, actually if I was ever teaching again, I would probably try and teach prose this way. Because you're looking at the clock of, of language, and you're trying to look at it so hard and nudge it so precisely and fix it in its little cogs so carefully that, that the whole thing will start to move of its own accord. And yet at the same time, there's a sense that it all goes, <coughs> clicks together, and then can never be touched again. And I know that in some of the more, um, uh, I, I sometimes I go into periods of a book, I mean pages, where there's mostly just commas. And I also never use semicolons, so they're always mm -hmm. trying to put them in. We must <laughs> discuss afterwards this against the semicolon thing. We'll start a little society against it. I think Hugo possibly uses full but stops. But this, this using, because poetry deals in these, well, I mean, classical poetry deals in, in, in feet of a very particular length, but you're dealing with um, sections of syntax. Also, I was very interested in um, all the old Latin manuscripts, which are on scrolls, but they're not punctuated. All they use sometimes was a raised dot. And there's no capital letters, so it's all running through, and what that means. So the eye itself has to l train itself to understand this, the, the syntactical uh, units. And, and that, that, I know, I mean, it's only now, 35 years later, that I realize that that's part of the reason I write sometimes in a certain way, when something becomes very swift, yeah. that you're using that so that probably is incredibly difficult to translate, yeah, I would imagine. I would think so. I would think so. Because it, you're in, a, you're in a, a strange state of mind anyway to begin with. But I, I tried to translate uh, Bernard Alba, and probably, unfortunately, it was put on by the Abbey. But my feeling was every inch of the way letting down my friend. Lorca. Lorca, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. that's how you feel when you're translating. Mm -hmm. You feel it's your brother or your sister, mm -hmm. and that you're just letting them down in a familial sort of way. Because how can you come up to what he did perfectly in this other music? Okay, uh, I saw a few other hands. There was a lady down at the back, I think. Yeah. Hi, my question is, 
uh, for example, for Hugo, who does speak German, would you ever consider translating your own book? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I do it very badly. Huh. I mean, I, I, would, uh, I never went to school in Germany, and I never lived there for long periods of time, so I would be... Um, I'd, I'd fall into traps, like, with colloquial phrases. I'd say something that was outrageous, because I wouldn't know the connotations of the language fully. Um, <clears throat> I mean, journalists regularly laugh at me in Germany because I, I use words that, you know, went out in sort of 1918. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> but that my mother was still using in, in Ireland. So uh, there's a kind of a gap there like that I've, I've, I need to close in on if, if I'm to translate the book myself, you know. Okay, so no is the answer to that Have question, Have you translated obviously. other things from German, no? Yeah. Sorry, into the, uh, other people's work from German. No? From to never, never done that. No. Yeah, yeah. no. It's no. a very different skill, isn't it? From from uh, from being. I mean, the more we talk about it, the more it seems to me that they're completely different skills. Being it being a creative writer and being a translator, mm -hmm. uh, although there has to be an understanding and an appreciation on on the part of the, the translator. Um, but then there are translators who are also writers. Uh, I would say a greater understanding for the translator. Yeah. Mm. Because the, 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 some of the work of we cherish most is, is written in that odd condition of being where it's, it's obviously time, the clock is ticking, in there, but, it, but you can put your head, come, you raise your head eight hours later and you don't mm. quite know where you've been. Mm. And even, strangely, what you've written. And it mm. is true that sometimes the best things you've done when you're proofing them, in all honesty, you don't actually remember them. Yeah. Do you know? So yeah. the, the translator cannot be in that condition of mind. The translator must be, uh, like I say, forensically minded mm. and fully aware mm. and probably much more grown up also than the writer. Cannot be in a restless state of childishness <laughs> as most of us are. <laughs> but I think both uh, writer and translator are making a huge number of calculations on every word and that mm. both can somehow achieve a state of flow that a good translator, when they're going can really get it and go, and that that creative surge is yeah. not to yeah. be gained. Now we've talked you know, so much, yeah. I'd actually like to see a translator working, you know, have a secret camera in their room, Wouldn't see you? what they get up to. <laughs> um, what do their faces look like when they're translating Hugo Hamilton? Their brains are they bliss? Are they blissful? <laughs> mm. uh, there was somebody, else. I saw another hand up somewhere, but it's gone again. Uh, nobody else has an, has an oh yes, yeah, sorry, uh, up here. Oh, when I came here this evening, I thought what was going to be, uh, what I was going to hear was how these three writers translated Ireland into stories ah. and their own interpretations of this country. The whole evening has been a mistranslation. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we'll just go out and come back in and we'll do that one. <coughs> you know, I think there was still enough in it, you know, to be... Uh, well, to get a lot of that uh, through the medium of talking about translation, which in itself, like to me, would seem maybe a lot more boring than talking about <coughs> writing. Yeah. Well, that's I very interesting uh, that we've completely misunderstood understood the what we've been told to do. <laughs> 
Well, I, I'm glad you saw th thought that there was still enough in it anyway. Um, but um, translating Ireland, as writers translating Ireland, uh, here, I think we need to, we'd need to, as Hugo says, spool back and start again, although, as you say, some of it might have come through. I think it's, 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 you could actually describe anybody who goes abroad and lives in another country as a translation. It's almost like a, a book translated in each case. I witnessed that in, in terms of my mother coming over here, constantly misunderstanding the people of Ireland. Um, every sentence had to be kind of brought home first and examined before she could trust it. Uh, that was the kind of eloquence that Irish people have in, mm. with language. It's a wonderful skill in saying nothing and still be talking all the time. I mean, I think that's what our, the Ireland's literary gift came from, you know. Um, I, like okay, that, that <laughs> I like that concept of, of not being able to trust it, that you'd have to examine it before you trust mm. it. That, oh, that you, the you language never, of itself was designed to, in some way, the, well, confuse that's true. I mean, her. We never quite know what other people mean. Like, uh, you know, and of course, this is an old, the, the basic subject of, of Beckett's work is like the, how little we can trust language, even though we're kind of working with it all the time. It's very slippery material, uh, particularly when you're, as, as you're uh, saying, like when you're tr describing a country, when you're translating country into, into story, into fiction or, or, or language. Mm. Mm. Well, I think people coming in, that's why it's so important that it's not just people who leave, you know, but people who come in to a country like Ireland, and we all came in at some point, since there was nobody here 10,000 years ago, uh, are in, in effect translators because they're coming into a culture which they then must start to understand, uh, which is a form of translation. They're translating it into their own terms and also eventually maybe starting misunderstanding a lot of it, eventually being the best understanders of the place they are. So the country, the country needs the influx of people to revivify it and also to identify the things that you don't need the things in history that actually aren't important, that we thought were important, that they can live without, and all those things. Uh, you know, and the, the distressing reluctance of people in England, like uh, the UK party, to have people coming in. Is it the sort of, they say it's so that they can have, make Great Britain great again. What they're actually talking about is the p potential destruction of Great Britain by closing off the borders to people. Because without the people coming in, without the kind of celestial translators that are immigrants, you, you, you stop having a country because you can no longer tell what is important. You can no longer discriminate. You can no longer shake the pan correctly in the river and find the, the gold, the proper gold at the bottom. I think well, there is a point about translating Ireland that is in, inherent in what we've been saying is that Hiberno-English doesn't like direct statements. Um, or spends a lot of time not saying things, and that that sense of elaboration and uh, confusion is interesting <laughs> uh, to other, to, you know, it, it leads to all other kinds of openings and possibilities um, that perhaps in more uh, patriarchal societies or more imperialistically set societies. I think there is an interesting idea about how how the powerful and the unpowerful and the, and the weak use language, and, and that the Irish being weak have used it in a very particular way that somehow 
seems to just touch on, you know, just it, it, it keeps moving. That there's a, there's a kind of shift in the way we use language that means that it's still sort of shifting in translation. Does that make sense? It does, but it, mm. it yeah. also throws up all sorts of new challenges for, for, for translators as well, or it adds to the layers of things that, that translators are, are going to have to figure out. I know, but it, it, it perhaps is the success of Irish writing that we won't say what's on our mind. <laughs> so you can't be pinned down, so it keeps moving. There's, there's one last thing we haven't talked about, and it's um, whether we, because you all have the great privilege of being Anglophone writers, uh, so you have a huge audience before ever you get translated into another language. But do you think that Anglophone readers are as curious um, or will go to the trouble of finding out more about uh, non-Anglophone writers as when the boot is on the other foot? I mean, are we just happy to just mosey along with English-speaking writers and not make any huge effort? Because I often notice in other but this European... this annoys the French so much. I mean, you know, that, that, that they're not more tr translated into... You know, they have slight language tension there, that they mm. resist English language. Not, not necessarily the Irish writers of English, but they resist English language things and say, well, French writers. But we have so many great writers in France. Yeah. And you say, well, who are they? They're not translated. And, and they, you know, that there is a slight tension there. Yeah, but and, and, and in many other countries, I mean, whether it's African countries, Asian countries, wherever, you know, do we read enough of, of their literature? Or do publishers bother? Well, I mean, they're certainly not published. <coughs> yeah. I mean, the the rate of publication, translated publications in Germany and France is huge, huge in comparison yeah. to what's translated into English. Yeah, and what does that say mm. about us as readers? There's, well, a, there's a lack of curiosity. I mean... When I was a teenager, I read loads mm. of Japanese fiction as a teenager. Did Because it was so exotic and strange. Yeah, and not, not Tanizaki and... Uh, uh, Mishima and uh, Oe and, and yeah, <coughs> Japanese fiction. My daughter loves manga. It's like somewhere completely different. Yeah, so yeah. not Ireland. Yeah. That for well, those years, yeah. it was just like brilliant. Well, that's um, the joy of it. You're unusual in that sense because like most of our interest is in American uh, culture and uh, in, the in the Anglophone culture. I hit those, those white <coughs> picador books that were on the little carousel in books upstairs in 1977, you know, 78, and, 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 they were, and they were all from elsewhere. And growing up in Ireland, elsewhere was a really important place to me. <laughs> that's because you and you really? turned into a curious writer. And that's the, well, that's I wouldn't the have survived without those voices from elsewhere, I don't yeah. think, uh, because there, there, there were not enough there wasn't enough room for what I had to say at that, at that it, it, you know, without the support of writers from different traditions. Okay, well, I think we're going to end on that note. We are, after all, here to celebrate the birthday of Ireland Literature Exchange. And so they are doing for others out there in that great big planet what the Japanese literature did for you when <laughs> you had the curiosity to take the books from the, the, the top ago. of the carousel and books upstairs. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Thank, thank you for your questions. And thank, thank you, you particularly to Sebastian, Anne and Hugo. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.